Turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Luke, chapter 4. As we continue with our ninth installment of the Savior's Saga, the beginning of the ministry of the life of Jesus. And he's now literally going to go to what is recorded in Scripture, at least in Luke's Gospel, uh, the first time he shows up in church. Now, let me share with you a little bit about my own history as a pastor. When I first went into ministry more than 30 years ago, I was not prepared for a couple of things. And one of the things I was least prepared for was how much opposition would come from within the church. It was actually church very often that was the greatest hindrance to the things that God was doing. I found people to be critical, uh, that very often they would have really not nice things to say to people who were trying desperately to serve the Lord. And, And in fact, it was what I came to call organized religion sometimes that is the greatest detriment to the relationship that God wants us to have with him through Jesus Christ his son. We get so caught up in our religion that we miss the relationship. And it is that that Jesus is going to encounter in our very first time where we find Jesus in church. And so we'll pick up in verse 14. I will read through verse 30. Before we do that, let's pray and we'll read the scriptures together. Father, thank you for the picture that we have here of some things that might be dangerous. Lord, we ask that you would speak into our lives and encourage and strengthen us through your word. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone struggling today that's here watching online, Lord, joining us digitally someplace and and they're struggling because religion has gotten in the way of a relationship with you, that you would set them free. Lord, cut those chains. Be the chain breaker today of, of the cords that can bind us. Lord, those things that we think we know, those places where you are not master, you're not our Lord, you're simply Savior. And so, uh, Lord, we ask you, speak through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14 here in Luke chapter 4. And then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So he's been close to Jerusalem, eight, nine miles away in the Judean foothills. And so he's now traveled back to his hometown, the place where he grew up as a child, the place where he himself, we're going to see, was instructed in the synagogue back to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was... As his custom was, he was a churchgoer. He was a synagogue attender. He was Jewish, and he did what all Jewish boys did. They went to synagogue. They studied the Torah. Uh, they, They had readings from the law and from the prophets, from the wisdom writings. They they spent time in the pseudepigrapha. And so there were many things that Jesus did while he was a child that we would say Jesus grew up in church. And on the Sabbath day and stood up and read. You see what happened, much like I'm doing now. They stood and read. When they finished, they sat down. And so Jesus now, uh, as the cantor would read the section of, of the text, which was for the church that day, for the synagogue that day, uh, they would be handed the scroll and there would be an attendant. The attendant would take the yod or the hand and follow along in the text because you never, it was so holy 
The word of God was considered so holy by the Jewish people, they didn't actually touch it. They actually used a little wand to follow along. And so Jesus is now about to receive the scroll. Wouldn't have been a book. It says book in your Bible if you have an English translation likely. But he would have received a scroll much like the one that you can find today in the Israel National Museum in the, in the dome of the book. Uh, there is a copy from the Dead Sea Scrolls of the entirety of the book of Isaiah. It's more than 24 feet long. It, it didn't have pages. It didn't have chapters. It didn't have verses. It was a scroll. And Jesus now has that scroll in his hands. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. Now, remind yourself who Jesus is. John's gospel says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So the word has now got the word in his hand. Amen. I'm pretty sure he can find any spot he wants in the word of God. He didn't need chapters and verses. He didn't need a search engine on his cell phone. And it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This comes from the 61st chapter in your English Bible of the book of Isaiah. So it's very near the end of the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters in the book. In the 61st, in the first two verses, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me. Now notice this. Jesus is reading this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me. That word anointed is Mashiach. Messiah. Anointed one. To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He's preaching this in church and he's reading these verses to set at liberty those who were oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The, the book, the scroll was kept in what's called an ark. It's a closed cabinet. It would be opened up and the attendant would fetch it out. It was considered uh, the most prized possession of every Jewish community would have been the ark that contained their Torah scroll. And so in this case, along with that would have been the Tanakh. So there's all their, all their, all the word is contained inside of this, this box. And all eyes who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And you can almost imagine, why did he pick that passage? What's he trying to say? That passage is about Messiah. The Jewish people believed and have believed for the better part of 2,700 years that those words were written about the coming Messiah. And he began to say to them, here it comes. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You can imagine what they're thinking. Say what? It's fulfilled? They speak of me. Remember what he read. The anointed one is standing right in front of you. And you can almost imagine what they're... He, he did not just say that. 
Are you kidding me? And the reason we know this is true, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And then they said, now, wait a second. Isn't this Joseph, the carpenter's son? Isn't this the woodworker? And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Again, he personalizes it. First person. Physician, heal yourself. If you're the son of God, come down off of that cross. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, how did he start? You will surely attribute, you will say these things to me. A prophet. He's declaring himself both prophet and Messiah simultaneously. But truly, I tell you this, that many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, to the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Why does that matter? Because the widow at Zarephath was not a Jew. The great prophet Elijah did not go to a Jewish widow. He went to a very Gentile widow in the city of Sidon. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha. So if you don't like Elijah, the one whose place setting is set at every Passover table, the Elijah who is to come, then what about the one who took over for him and received his garment? Elisha the prophet. And to none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus said, you'll attribute these things to me. And so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Why would that be? Because Jesus had just declared himself to be Messiah. Because Jesus had just said that the gospel was going to go forth to the Gentiles because the Messiah would not even be received in his own country. The prophet of God's words would fall on deaf ears when it came to the religious of the Jewish people. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And then passing through the midst of them, he went away. Now, as you read this passage, a long passage for a single Sunday morning service, but I believe we can do it justice in the time that we have remaining. You might be asking yourself, why did Jesus move from the area of Jerusalem to the region of Galilee 
which was called Galilee of the Gentiles. When you spoke of Galilee, you spoke of Galilee of the Gentiles. It was primarily Gentiles that lived there. There were Jews, and obviously we see that there's a synagogue. There had to be Jewish people there. Where 10 or more Jewish men were gathered, they would normally have a synagogue. There are synagogues all over the northern region of Galilee. So Jesus has made this journey. He's gone back to his hometown. Jesus didn't come to establish religion. He came to seek and save that which is lost. Amen? And so he goes back to his hometown. He goes to a place where this word is likely to get out. Because if he had stayed in Jerusalem, the opposition against him speaking those words by the Sanhedrin, the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas at the time, would have been so great, it is very likely that this story would need to be rewritten were it not that God wrote it before it ever happened. Amen? And, and so Jesus goes where Jesus should have gone, back to the town of his birth, where he grew up as a Jewish young man, where he spent every Shabbat from Friday at sundown till Saturday at sundown going to temple, going to the synagogue, reading the word of God. He was known for that practice. And so he had a place in the midst of them. Remember, Jesus is now a 30-year-old man. He's not a youngster anymore. And so he begins to speak in this rural region of Galilee. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the capital. He's not where all the religious things are happening. But he has absolutely gone right where religion is seated personally with the people in his own hometown. Now, while he's not attacking Judaism... He is saying, look, I didn't come to make you more religious. You're plenty religious enough. You've got religion down pat. Matter of fact, you haggle over religion. Religion is actually the barrier. And we're going to look at four reasons why this passage seems to indicate that is true. But before we do that, I find it interesting. If you travel with us to Israel, you're going to see some very amazing things. Um, this is from the Mount of Beatitudes. Now, you would think where Jesus preached his greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which also includes the Beatitudes, you wouldn't find a chapel that was built by the war criminal Benito Mussolini. But in fact, the church is built, uh, was built using the funds given by Benito Mussolini. And outside of the church, just on the other side of those flowers, is that chapel. But there's scriptures all around. I found this one pretty interesting. Let anyone who thirsts come and drink, and whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within him, water not for drink. <clears throat> and no entrance. That is a picture of religion right there. It's like, there's the truth, but don't drink it and don't come in. Very often, that's what religion does. It becomes a hindrance. There are so many rules and so many regulations and so many do's and don'ts that we forget to all who will come may. 
to as many as believe on him, to them become the sons, the daughters of God. If you will believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords you'll be saved the simplicity of the gospel is often buried in the religion of man you you can't find it many of the synagogues still exist that were there during jesus's time and i i love capernaum it's the hometown of jesus you can buy little tokens that say i went to jesus's place you can get bumper stickers t-shirts and hats that all will say, I've been to the hometown of Jesus. And then there's these signs every place. It's a holy place. So no dogs, no smoking, no AK-47s, and of course no people. It has men and women in a circle and a slash through it. It's, it's like, I kind of think the point is so that people would get to know the place that Jesus ministered. But sometimes... Religion gets in the way. You see, Jesus taught in this very synagogue. Jesus also, just a few miles away, about six, taught in the synagogue at Magdala. You you know its famous citizen, Mary, the Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. They didn't believe that these were even Jewish synagogues. They thought that these were Roman temples until they stumbled upon the Bema seat. And if you look on there, there's actually a Jewish menorah on it. Jesus undoubtedly sat right there. Jesus was busy, but he definitely was not received in these synagogues. Why? Because in many ways, he was the antithesis of religion. Religion had gotten to the point to where religion itself was what mattered. It was not a relationship with the one true God. It wasn't truly monotheism. It was a religious endeavor that was governed by countless rules and regulations, 613 of them that we find in Scripture for the Jewish law and for all the feast days and everything that was included in orthodoxy as far as a Jewish person was concerned. But that wasn't the end of it. The Mishnah Torah, the Babylonian Talmud, and all these things that were then later added as obligations, eventually it got to where if you picked up a grain of wheat in a field on a Sabbath, you were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. If you walked beyond about a quarter of a mile on the Sabbath, you were guilty of breaking the Sabbath because you took a journey that was after the beginning of the Sabbath day and it became a weight. You see, what Jesus did not say to the disciples is all you who desire to come after me, let him go to catechism. Attend seminary. Go through a new believer's class. Now, by the way, I'm not against any instruction, and neither is Jesus, in the ways of the Lord. But those things come after you've had a relationship with him. It is not those things first, and then you can know him. You know him, and then those things will actually take their proper place and matter. And so the Jewish people had gotten it backwards. 
They'd come to this place to where we alone know how to worship God. And to some degree, there's even a measure of truth in that. God revealed himself to the Jewish people. They were blessed like no other people and still are the apple of God's eye. And God still loves me, and he's going to keep the Abrahamic covenant. One day, all Israel is going to come to know Christ in a general sense. They'll know Messiah. Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 11. But religion in that day was keeping people from knowing Jesus. It was holding them at arm's length. Why does that happen? Why do religious people reject Jesus? And I see in this passage four basic reasons. The first one is really, really clear. They don't want the truth. Jesus had just spoken the truth of them, attributed that passage in Isaiah 61 to himself. And they're going, we don't want this man to rule over us. We expect a Messiah who's going to come and devastate Rome's armies. He's going to deal with the injustice that we faced. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. He did not come to fix all of the earthly problems. And in fact, he would go on later to say, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he also gave him hope and said, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. He said, so you walk in me. Don't worry about what the world's doing. You worry about what I'm doing. But people didn't want that truth. They wanted a different kind of Messiah. Much like people do today. They they want me as a pastor generally to tell them that they're right about how they feel. They, They want me to validate the truth that they already think they believe. They very often want me to say, you know, you have it correct and everybody else is wrong. Basically, the way you think and feel and live, I'm supposed to justify that. And when I speak the truth into somebody's life, because this, thus says the Lord, I read the word, I go, you know, right here it says you can't keep your bitterness. It doesn't say you kind of, sort of, maybe should forgive. Jesus himself says you must forgive. Otherwise, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Those are the, people don't like to hear that. Well, I'm not forgiving them. Forget it. Do you know what they did? Well, the choice is yours. But I'm telling you, if you want what God wants for you, you have to live your life according to what he has said, not what you think you should do. And oh boy. No, go find some church to where there, here's the list of things that you can do and you don't have to forgive them. Well, I was verbally abused. I don't have to forgive. Yes, you do. Because the word of God says you do. And that's for you, by the way. Because if you do not forgive, Jesus said you will be turned over to the torturer. Doesn't say the other person will. It says you will. Anybody in here want to be turned over to the devil? Good. That means that your brains are working right now. It means that your heart is inclined towards the things of the Lord. If you want to be tortured, then walk around in unforgiveness. You see how this works? You see, people don't want to hear that very often. They think they have a right to hate. They have a right to be angry. They have a right to be bitter. They have a right to speak evil against their brother. They have a right to do all these things. And thereby, I'm supposed to validate those things. Now, I'm going to tell you, you're going to destroy yourself if you don't forgive. You'll destroy yourself. 
Because the enemy is going to get into your life. A second thing that I see in this passage, religious people very often reject Christ because they do not want to submit to his lordship. Jesus was saying, in effect, I'm Messiah. In the Old Testament, he was known as Yahweh Adonai. God who is Lord. Lord means master. You see, sometimes people want God to be their defender, their provider, their healer. Oh, they want Jehovah Rapha. They want Yahweh Sid Canoe. They want the Lord who is our righteousness, our defense. But they don't want Yahweh Adonai. The God who is the Lord. The Master. And very often it's religion that gets involved in this. You can find churches where they tell you it's okay to have all kinds of thoughts that align with the world. And I've watched it happen in my time in ministry. You have whole denominations that have shifted away from the truth of God's word and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it has become what the church declares to be true is true. Can I tell you? Your body is not your own. You do not as a Christian, hear me very carefully, you do not as a Christian have any right whatsoever to do what you want with your body. Your body belongs to the Lord, as does the rest of you. And in fact, that is the plain teaching of Romans chapter 12. And so they reject the Lordship. You see, I actually don't get to call the shots about what I do with my body, my mind, my resources, or anything else, because the whole of it, the Bible says, belongs to the Lord. And he's the one that's supposed to control what I do with it. It's not up to me to change the rules of the game. I play by his rules. That's called lordship. He's the master. I follow him. And when I do that, guess what? It works out the way it's supposed to, according to his will and his pleasure. But when I don't, when I find some religious group that says, oh, well, that, those guys are conservative, evangelical Christians. They believe the Bible's actually true. Yes, I do. Because the same Bible that teaches I'm saved by grace and through faith also teaches that submit yourselves unto the Lord, for he is holy. And so I don't get to pick and choose which verses I want to believe. I submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So if his word speaks it, then it's up to me to do it. These guys did not like what the Lord had just said. Oh, no, we're not going down that road. A third thing. And this is difficult for us, isn't it? Because, see, we measure very often our spirituality by someone else's lack of it. Please don't be offended. But please do listen. You will not get to heaven and be judged by how unspiritual someone else was. When you get to heaven, you will be measured by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ... 
and whether you were found in him by grace and through faith, not whether you met some list of criteria that made you look better than your fellow man. And here's what we do. We don't want to admit that we're actually sinful and have issues. Can I just say really clearly, your pastor is sinful and has issues. Now, my sinful issues are not what they once were. Praise God. Amen? But I don't think the right things all the time. Sometimes when things happen to my family, I get a little tweaked just like the rest of you who are in this room. And I have some thoughts. It's like, mm, that's more like David, not like Jesus. Lord, break the teeth out of their mouth. Not Lord, save them. Amen? Could you grind their bones to dust, Father? In Jesus' name. And then I go, oh, that's not him. That's just an admission. That's me saying, you know what I need every day? I desperately need the grace of God in my own life. Amen? I'm not going to be judged by your sinfulness or anyone else's and how I relate to your sinfulness or anyone else's. I'm going to be judged by what I did with Jesus Christ and his grace. That's it. So what we do is we take someone else's life and go, I'm better than them. That's like trying to, to figure out which one was worse, Hitler or Mussolini. You understand what I'm saying? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? There's none righteous, not one. So why are we looking at other people going, I'm better than them? I'm not better than them. I'm different than them. Make that distinction in your heart and your mind. You might be less sinful in certain areas, but more sinful in others. And can I tell you, the Bible doesn't have a list where there's these are tens and these are nines and these are eights and these are sevens and these are sixes. And I only do threes. <laughs> you did a nine yesterday, Anna, and you even may have done an 11. If you got one sin, if it hasn't been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, you're not going to heaven. Praise God, that's how great His grace is, His unmerited favor is. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Amen? <laughs> Yours, mine, ours, and everybody else's who believe on His name. So at the end, I'm really not all that good. Neither were these guys sitting in the sanctuary that day. The fourth and final thing. And I think this one might be the most dangerous. Familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? You ever noticed how your religion can get in the way? Your, your program of the things that you do on a habitual level, you, you, you kind of have this little thing that, that you do, and it's like your, it's your churchy stuff. It's like, well, I go to Bible study. I have devotions. I got a daily reading plan. Now, let me make it really clear. Every one of those things is absolutely fantastic. But pretty soon you can start trusting in your Bible reading. Instead of in the fact that you need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can start trusting in church. Sadly, I've had people trust in me. They'll come, can you just pray for me? And I go, why don't you pray for yourself? God hears your prayers. He's attentive to the cries of his children. He can hear you. 
And you don't need to repeat his name every single other word. Just talk to him. Speak to him. Cry out to him. He is your father in heaven who loves you. But don't get so familiar that you fall into the trap. Well, he already knows. No, he's asked you to ask him. Matter of fact, he has commanded you to ask him. He wants to engage with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Do you see it? You see, I know I'm an American citizen. I have a passport, a passport card. I think I got a chip put in my head somehow I didn't know about. I'm an American citizen. That is who I am. But it's up to me to act like someone who is an American citizen. It's up to me to care about the things that we care about collectively. I can take for granted that I have citizenship. You can take for granted your citizenship in heaven. And pretty soon you're not doing anything to be a part of the family of God. You're you're just taken. God wants you to be engaged in a relationship with him to where you are giving. To where you yourself are a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto him. Which is your reasonable service just exactly as Romans 12 begins. You see church... When you look at this passage, you begin to break it down that way. It becomes really clear. Jesus in this passage claims to be the Savior. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. He's not leaving the door open for anyone else. And here's the beauty of that. He's doing away, in essence, with all religious endeavor. The only way to know God the Father is through Christ the Son. That only comes by grace and through faith. It's not religion at all. It's you personally knowing Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. As Jesus declared he was Savior, he's making the implication, I am the anointed one. I'm not just the village carpenter, amen? I I am a man, but I am the man who is also 100% God. I am the one that Isaiah was speaking about. So the people are looking at him going, did he just say what we think he said? He declared himself to be the Messiah. And so God's grace became visible to them. They could see it. But they didn't like that. That isn't what they wanted. Why? Because people love Religion. They love religion because it's something they can do. Religion is what you do for God, in essence. And while that's not inherently bad or evil, it can become a substitute for having a relationship with God. It's just like, here's my duty I go to church, I tithe, I I went on a missions trip. And we start listing all the things we did for God. Those are religious works in that sense. But God's saying to you today, just as he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, if you love me, keep my commandments. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, 
tend my lambs. Peter, if you have a relationship with me, you'll love me. You won't just do stuff for me. It won't just be an obligation where you go and do your works. You will literally have a relationship with God himself. And church, that's what we want. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for myself. I I don't want religion. I want a personal relationship with the God who loves me, and I want to love him back. That's why these guys were furious, and so they took him out to this hill. This is on the south side. If you travel with us, we go to this point. It's called the Mount of the Precipice. It's about 1,000 feet to the Jezreel Valley below. Nazareth is behind you. If you were standing in this photograph, it would be at your back if you were looking out. But the reason they took him there was to kill him. This was so offensive to them that he would say, I am God's son. I am Messiah. I'm the one that the prophets prophesied of. I'm him. And they're going, you're the carpenter's son. And he's going, no, I'm God's son. I'm the long-awaited one. I'm the one you're waiting for. You see, but religion got in the way. Oh, what about the temple? What about the sacrifices? What about the Passovers? What about the Feast of Trumpets? What about tabernacles? What about, what about, what about, what about? And as Jesus moves through his ministry, he's going to take each one of those things. He's going to say, I'm the bread of life. I'm the water. I'm the light of the world. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Believe in me. He who believes in me, yet though he shall perish, he shall have eternal life. Jesus hadn't come to be flung to his death. And so he simply walks away. He he disappears, in essence. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only answer. Religion has never been able to save anyone. It is only a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that can do that. It remains so to this day. Without Christ, no one sees heaven. Jesus made that so infinitely clear. No one can read John's gospel and get to that 14th chapter and read the sixth verse when Jesus himself said, I am. He uses the tetragrammaton, I am. The name of God, the covenant name of God. I am Yahweh. I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Wasn't that the temple was bad? It's the temple couldn't save. Wasn't that the feast days were bad? It's that the feast days couldn't save. It wasn't that Yom Kippur was bad. It pointed to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, and the real atoning for our sin the real payment, the real justification. Debt completely wiped out.
not put away for another day, but done away with permanently forever. And so Jesus walks out of the scene into the hill country of Galilee to continue his ministry. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. And I want to simply ask you if you're here today. Maybe you came and you, you're just visiting. Maybe you've been coming for a while and perhaps you felt like, well, I'm going to go and do my religious thing. No shame whatsoever. But Jesus wants to know you personally. He, he doesn't want you to engage in religion. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, please. If you're here and you already know the Lord, if you would be praying right now for the Spirit to move in the lives of the people gathered in this room. If you're here today, maybe you're watching online. And you don't have a relationship with God. You you simply have been doing your religious duty and you want to change. And you want to begin to have a relationship with Him. The Bible is so clear. It says, if you will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You'll have a relationship with the Lord. And that relationship then is the basis for everything else that you do. If you're here today and and you want to know Jesus personally and begin a relationship with him, I'm going to just simply ask you right where you're standing to just simply put your hand up in the air. And we're going to pray for you where you are. I see that hand in the back. Praise the Lord. See this hand in the front. I see this other hand in the front. Anyone else? I see this other hand, several hands over here to my left side, towards the back. Anyone at all? I see his hands over here to my right. You, you want to know Jesus. You don't, you're tired of religion. You're done with religious endeavor and trying to earn your own way, and you just simply want to walk with the king. I see this other hand to my left. Just lift your hand. We're just simply going to pray. All Jesus said is, if you'll acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you before my Father. See this hand to my right. See this other hand to my right. Praise God. Thank you, Father. For those who have raised your hands, and maybe there are some of you that that wanted to but didn't, now's the time for you to do business with the King. So I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. It's got to come from you. I, I can give you some words, but it really needs to be from your heart. And so as we pray, Just open your heart to the Lord. Have him reveal himself to you. Would you pray these words with me? Father in heaven, I confess that I am a sinner and I can't save myself. And Lord, I'm tired of religion and I want to have a relationship with you. Lord, thank you for dying on Calvary's cross for my sin. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you've offered me. And I'm asking you right now, forgive my sin. Inscribe my name in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, I believe in you. And I want to know you personally. I commit my life to you. And I'm asking you to also be my Lord. To be my master. Take control of my life. And use me for your glory, for your purposes. Thank you for saving me. I believe by faith that right now 
I am your child. Thank you for my salvation, which is rich and free. Help me to walk with you all of my days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the family of God.